you said to me to describe this story, I would say, don't believe it, but it's true. I can't even imagine somebody doing something like this. It's also the perfect crime, because sometimes the thing that's blatant right in front of your face is a thing you don't expect. I was going to be a million dollar winner. I was game for something exhilarating. From 1989 to 2001, there were almost no legitimate winners of the high-value game pieces in the McDonald's Monopoly game. Uncle Jerry told me, if you want a game piece, this is how it's done. Hi, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of McMillions, a documentary series on HBO. And this is the official McMillions podcast, episode three. I'm really excited about this episode because we will have on the show Gloria Brown, one of the $1 million winners and friend of Robin Colombo. We'll also have some deleted scenes from the show, and we'll also be able to answer some of your questions that you emailed in to us. Before we get to any of that, let's recap this week's episode. So episode three kicked off with Gloria Brown in 2001, getting pulled into a Shamrock Productions reunion of winners. We also learned more about Jerry Colombo and his expansion of this entire scam that included flight attendant Lee Cassano. We talked about the Fuzzy Bunny and eventually the Church of Fuzzy Bunny, which really blew our minds. Absolutely unbelievable that that happened in real life. And then the episode ended with a car crash. One of the things that we've talked about quite a bit was how to establish point of view and to really use point of view to help us illustrate the challenges that each of these people and each, whether it was the FBI, whether it was a winner, uh, were going through at the time. And seeing Gloria's story initially from the point of view of the FBI and then flipping it at the end of the episode to hear her point of view would really illustrate what she was going through and what the FBI was going through. When you watch her in front of the FBI lying. I know personally when I first saw that footage, you start to think, oh my God, this person's lying. They're a criminal. Maybe they're still in jail. You don't really know. And then once we were able to meet her and understand that, she ended up getting roped into something much larger than she ever expected. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty eye-opening. And we wanted to spend a, a great deal of time with her and, uh, to really understand what she was going through. Yes, this case seems like it can be a victimless crime. And there are very funny things that happen within it. But also, this is an actual criminal case that people's lives were changed forever by this. And we wanted to show just how real all of this can be. The FBI doesn't focus on the personal background and decision-making behind these criminals. It's, did you commit a crime? And how did you commit that crime? And the details of what Gloria went through really have never been out there. This was something that many of the federal agents who have actually watched this episode have now come up to us and said, we had no idea. When I first got the offer, I thought to myself that there was a blessing that came knocking at my door. And, you know, I was going to church and I was doing, trying to do the right thing. 
And my son was young, and I was making probably about $24,000 a year. It was just, by the time taxes and stuff come out, it's really nothing. And I just wanted a better life, and I just felt like this was my opportunity. And I said, well, this couldn't come to me if it wasn't meant for me. Gloria, thanks for uh, joining us. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. We invited you to come to the Sundance Film Festival where we premiered the first three episodes of the series. And you came, Mark Devereaux, who was a federal prosecutor, also came along with Chris Graham, who was the squad chief. It was really incredible to see all you guys together. I mean, first of all, what was Sundance like for you? I was really nervous, but after meeting everybody, it, it kind of made the the experience more memorable. When we first were talking about premiering there, we asked you if you wanted to see the episode in advance, and you you said you didn't. Can you tell us again why you didn't want to see it before it actually screened? Well, you know, talking to you guys for the first time about it in detail was a purging point for me, and I didn't know how I was going to react once I actually saw it all put together. My thing is I didn't want to see it, and then if something I didn't like about it or something didn't go right, I didn't want to be thinking about it all night. So I just said, I'll just wait. Yeah, it's understandable. My first thought that I was going to be really emotional about it, but it flowed so easy till I just was actually enjoying listening to it. We had tried to talk to you for a while, and you logically said no. And then we, you finally agreed to meet us at Cracker Barrel. What did you think when you first sat down with us? My first thought was I was not going to do it. I was just going to listen to what you had to say. And my second thought is Robin connecting me again with some people, and I didn't want to be bothered because it might be more trouble. And, you know, thirdly, I just didn't want to go through it. I just didn't want to talk about it. I have never, I had never told anybody any details and how I felt and why I never shared it or any of that until, you know, I shared it with you guys. And then when we sat down and you guys was talking so smooth and you seemed to have some caring activity that was obvious to me, and and I just decided to rethink it and say this might be the time that if they're going to tell the story, I need to tell my own story. I don't need anybody else to, re- to try and figure out what I went through. Right, because no one else knew. No one else knew. So even though I was having st- Hot flashes. (laughs) Very nervous. I was shaking like a leaf on a tree. I said, okay, am I going to make another bad decision or what? You know, I needed to know, should I even do this or is it worth it? Or, I mean, you don't get anything out of it. What's the point? But the point was to me, You never know how many people are being scammed, you know, and a lot of people don't recognize what's happening. And I beat myself up all these years because I made a dumb move, and I thought I was smarter than that. 
Nah, man, I got a college degree. I was a social worker for so many years. I wouldn't take a chance on nothing like that, but I did. So, you know, I figured if if the story needs to be told and people are going to assume I need to tell the whole story so that they can have a better picture of what really happened with me. Well, well, I mean, obviously we're we're so glad that you did, and it really does illustrate how even with a college education, even with the the right mind that you felt that you were in at the time, how easy it is for people to get roped into a scam and how many people wanted to win this game. It's something that we ourselves growing up, everybody wanted to win. And if you had that chance, you had a lot of people would, would be in a similar situation that you were in. We talk about your relationship with Robin Colombo, obviously in the episode, but something we, we always wanted to talk about a little more is how did you and Robin actually meet? Robin and I met through a mutual friend of mine. Um, this person was actually renting my first small home and that's how I met her just in conversation with my tenant and her. And that first impression you had of Robin at then? And my first impression during that time I was a social worker and sitting and talking with her, I realized that she needed some L-O-V-E, love. And that was, you know, she was going through family hardships and um, that's my nature to just, I don't know, I take people and try and fix them. Hmm. Before all the Monopoly thing and all that, you actually had a stroke of luck winning something else. You told us about this when we sat down with you. It's actually one of the deleted scenes from the show. The city of Jacksonville was helping families become independent. So I fell in the category of low income. Well, the first house, I got kind of like a lottery. You put your name in this barrel and turn this barrel around at City Hall and pull your name out. My name got pulled. I was number 13 on the list. How many people have turned up a house for $10? But because my credit was decent and I can get a loan to fix it up, that eliminated all the people in front because they had bad credit. It was a blessing. I'm saying to myself, God is good. I got a chance. I did win that, honestly. <laughs> the first month, I think, somebody broke in our house, stole everything. Then we had to put bars all to the windows and to the back door. And, and then we used to always hear shooting one block down where people were getting killed. It was just a bad neighborhood, but I mean, I couldn't pass that up for that price. When I got my second house, I had to make a fast move. I called it in foreclosure. No one had lived in it for two years. And I moved in an old regular house that I got to fix up with no curtains, no refrigerator, no nothing. It was major work to get it together. It's a nice area to live in compared to where we were. 
and it was like moving on up. So my goal was just move, keep, keep myself going and move on up a little bit more. There I was, a single woman, and I guess Jerry Colombo said, well, she's a go-getter, she got two houses, and she could possibly get a hand on some money. Hearing that now, what are you thinking about? Dumb, <clears throat> dumb move. Done move on me. You had won a house before. You probably never thought that you were actually going to be picked. Once I got my opportunity, I was really, really going to try to do my best to make it happen. When they called you to tell you that you want a house, what was that like? It was a good feeling because they gave me three, three locations to choose from. All the locations, of course, was in the bad neighborhood. But it didn't matter to me. I was going to have my own house. I was renting before. To me, when you rent, it's a waste of money because you never own it. And the money that you're putting into it, you can never claim it. Any kind of, no kind of way you can claim it. So one of my goals were to own my own home. And I was overwhelmed and excited. I was especially excited because it had a little small fireplace in it, you know. <laughs> That's I great. Could, could really, really fake some moves with the fireplace, you know. <laughs> you knew the lifestyle that Robin Colombo and Jerry Colombo had. When you saw their lifestyle, did you think for a minute that maybe I could have a little piece of this? I asked Robin, you know, what kind of work did he do? And she said that he do a lot of different things. I'm not one to just look at what someone else have to determine what I need. I just like what I want for myself. And my goal was to do my place where I'm living now the same way I did my first place. So I just figured, you know, hey, this was a ble another blessing coming my way. You know, I just wanted to just progress. People describe Jerry Colombo as, as this funny, sort of fun-loving guy, but it, w it was different with you. How was your relationship with Jerry Colombo? I've seen, you know, the jolly part that he played and um, my first, you know, encounter with him. It was okay. And then later in, in the process, I started seeing another side of him. And I was getting phone calls all the time in the night. I was getting all kind of directives. And I was actually being told what I needed to do. There's two sides of Jerry Colombo. I saw both sides. And does it frustrate you to know that he's just trying to play this life and, and in a lot of ways you're suffering because of it? Even though Robin felt that I was her friend and I was going to be treated right, I got treated like everybody else. There was a the family side and the good side, and there was a the side when strictly business. So with me, it became strictly business. Yeah, he didn't come right out and say what he would do to you or anything like that. But he had a way with words that let you knew that, you know, do as I say. 
Yeah. Another really big moment within your story is when you actually had to redeem the game piece. What was it like watching that? It's embarrassing, to be honest. I mean, no one wants to get caught up into something like that. You actually claim the piece, and immediately people think you're a millionaire. How did winning impact your relationships with your family and friends? I started getting phone calls, and I started getting congratulations, and, you know, people were just overwhelming me with asking for things and asking for donations, and it was just very, very rough at that time because nobody knew that I was working three jobs to try and not lose what I had worked so hard for. And it was um, unexplainable to me, so I didn't bother to explain it to anybody. One thing that that was really interesting to us is understanding how the payouts work. Anybody from the outside might think, oh, you want a million dollars, they hand you a check for a million dollars and you can cash it and you're a millionaire. But that's not how it worked. It was $50,000 over 20 years and then taxed on top of that. Did Jerry Colombo ever explain to you how all of that would work or were you blindsided by that? I think the rules changed as we went along on some things. But did you initially say that he wanted $100,000 up front and then all you could do was get fifty? He wanted a total of 125. I couldn't come up with that. He wanted me to just try and get what I can get, and he would take that to start. Hmm. And then he would break it up over the years to get to that point. It ended up where it looked like I was having to give up more money, and he was just really calling me and telling me to try and get more money. He even called me one time and just said, give him the whole check and and he'll skip a year, you know, two years or something. You know, he was trying to make bargain with me. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, this is not going to ever end. I'm always be looking over my shoulder. He even tried to force me to cash it in and get all the monies for it. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get caught. And when I get caught, I'm not going to have to pay all that money back. So he kept pushing me to do it, and I just told him I couldn't do it. What, uh, sorry, cash it in in one... Like, lump sum, yeah, do the lump sum thing. For a while, it was only the 20-year option was the only way that you could claim the prize. So you actually did have the option when you won? What Jerry said I did, he said that I can cash it in, but I would have to go to some... I'm trying to think. I think it was a place called the Linen Tree or something, some place that would give you money because they know you're going to be getting money. Did you ever ask, Jerry, so what would happen if we get caught? They said no one would get caught because it's been that's the way it it operated. That's the way it's been going on for years. That's how it worked. that's, That's what you were telling yourself, and that's what they were telling you as well. Yes. When I left the... FBI interrogation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get busted. I had determined that 
got to go to jail. I just got to go to jail. I did what I did and I shouldn't have. I figured if I had did what I did and had to tell lies behind it, it was definitely a crime on my part. When Jerry Colombo comes to you and, and suggests getting a mortgage on your home to be able to pay for the game piece, were you ever worried that if you got caught, how this would affect your homes beyond just being in trouble with the law? I was worried almost immediately after um, he approached me about mortgaging the houses and getting the money. And with him calling me, it was kind of pushy. I really, really went to feeling the real stress of it. I had to start making up lies to say and tell people. I'm not very good at that. My dad used to say, if you tell one lie, you're going to have to tell another. And that's the way the, the whole thing ended up going. Lie after lie after lie. And I mean, speaking of lies, how did that make you feel watching your footage with the FBI? I could see that I was very uncomfortable because I had declined to do this thing, I don't know how many times, but I kept getting phone calls. I said that I was, would do whatever they needed me to do as far as publicity was concerned when I won the piece, so I kind of felt obligated to do it. If I had not felt obligated, I wouldn't have did it because I had this feeling just from the phone calls that it was not sincere what they were asking us to do. And then when I walked in, I was thinking it was a reunion. And then when I walked in, all I saw was lights and camera and nobody else in the room but me. It was not a good feeling. I wanted to just help and do what they needed me to do. And I was praying and hoping that they'd let me out of there. I'm sure you played in your mind at certain points like how your life would be different if you'd never uh, taken that piece. For sure, because I probably have that other house that I was trying to get put my hands on. One of my dreams has been in life is to do real estate. And I was just, I don't, I didn't have the money saved up to do it. So I was going to do it a little at a time and try and build my income so I don't have to work so hard. So with all that happening, it, it was a real setback. I still have that dream, but I'm going to make sure I do it the right way. Basically, now, 19 years later, you're, what, at the same point you were back then? Or would you say you're you're better off or you're worse off? I just begin to just kind of not work as hard. I'm working two jobs instead of three right now, so I'm doing a little bit better. I've worked and paid off the mortgages that I got on that house. So it's been a long road to just trying to take care of all those things that was on my shoulders. How did you feel seeing Robin in the show? Did it change your viewpoint of, of what went on at the time or what she had to deal with? I had an idea, a rough idea, that she was going through some of that, you know, because, you know, when I went to visit, you know, he wouldn't let us be in the room together, you know, by ourselves. So we really technically weren't allowed to talk about anything that had to do with the um, McDonald's monopoly. So 
I'm not sure, you know, how happy she was most of the time, but she had secure, safe environment, which was very important to her at that time. How did it make you feel knowing that you're shelling out all this money for Jerry and Robin to feed their lifestyle when you were struggling so hard? I was angry and sad a little bit because even after seeing the the episode of how things were twisted, I got twisted up in it. It's not a good feeling, even though I got a phone call from Robin years later and she she made a statement to me. She said, oh, you know, you got something out of it. And I'm saying, Robin, you don't realize what I put on the line. And I had to pay taxes on all of that money. And I think sometimes people that don't live in a lifestyle where they have to pay homeowners insurance and pay taxes and have to really, really totally provide for themselves, they don't realize what a real struggle it is to just do what you have to do. It was years before I heard from her again because um, I was a little pissed that she was laughing it off. So she didn't call me back anymore until some years later. Gloria, thank you so much for, for being on the show, being on the podcast. You've been fantastic. I guess I was purging. So I have you guys to thank for that, and I really appreciate your kindness 100%. Now let's get into some of the questions from our viewers. Our first question is an actual audio question. We love these, by the way. Please record your voice. How did the FBI allow the agents to talk about the case specifically? Are the agents in retirement? Are all of them in retirement? Are some still active? And if they're active, how did they permit them to come on camera and talk about what I assume would be confidential information, especially how they did the process? What the FBI normally does is uh, keep things very close to the chest. But for this, this case has been closed for almost two decades and it's completely adjudicated. There's no chance for an appeal and that allows them to talk about it. Then you just have to go through the process of reaching out to FBI headquarters, talking to them about what you wanna do, wait a little while and then hopefully they approve it and in our case we're lucky that they did most of the agents as well as federal prosecutor mark devereaux are retired now but there is still one active agent and that is doug matthews time for the next question our question comes from bill wilson did the detective really wear a gold suit first of all he's an fbi agent not a detective Brian, <laughs> did it really happen? Doug Matthews, the rookie agent he's referring to here, did in fact wear a gold suit, and that was corroborated by many other people in the room. The next question comes from Tom Ferry. He asks, did you ever consider editing out Doug's laughter and leave that aspect of his personality on the cutting room floor? Absolutely not. Once you meet Doug Matthews in person, and you see that personality, it's infectious and it just absolutely has to be in there. Part of it is because we, like most people, we're surprised that FBI agents actually have personalities on, they're not just robots with suits on. And we really wanted to show that the FBI isn't exactly what you think it is. It's real people 
working together. And as Chris Graham says in the undercover operation, no one would ever suspect him as being an FBI agent. No FBI agent laughs as much as Doug Matthews. So it, it, it is an important character trait to, uh, to keep in. What we wanted to do is work with the material that we have. Editing a documentary series is just a process of discovery. And in our case, we felt like we had strong material, funny material, and we really wanted to lean into that. We wanted to embrace the humor and the series tone at the same time. All right, now for the next question. This is a question that several people have asked us throughout all the time of working on this, and that is, who tipped off the FBI? So if you ask the FBI, there's no way in the world they would ever tell you. James, are we going to divulge who gave that tip? Well, you're going to have to stick around to find out. That's it for episode three of the McMillions podcast. If you have any questions about this episode or any future episodes coming up, please contact us. And how do they do that, James? You can email us at mcmillionspodcasts at hbo.com. That's McMillian spelled with an S, not the usual dollar sign that you'll see on the internet and around the world. If you want to record your question as a voice memo and email it to us, we can play it right here on the show. Don't forget to check out McMillian's airing Monday nights at 10 p.m. on HBO. And see you next week for episode four of the McMillian's podcast. This podcast was produced by FunMeter in conjunction with Unrealistic Ideas. For FunMeter, I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Joe Fencemaker produced this episode. Our consulting producer is Barry Finkel from Pineapple Street Studios. J.P. Hesser is our mixer. The music heard here comes from our actual series and was composed by Pinar Toprak. Unrealistic Ideas is Mark Wahlberg, Stephen Levinson, and Archie Gibbs. And of course, none of this would be possible without our amazing partners at HBO. You can find the McMillions podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO Now and Go apps, or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.